Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 4, Episode 1, Excitement at the End of Empire. We're in ancient India. To the side of us, the Ganga ambles across the broad plain. It goes down past the city of hunchback maidens, and then onwards, eastwards, until it comes under the shadow of the walls of Patliputra itself. That's the city we've been following in this podcast. And from there, it slips on out, eventually, to the sea. It moves quietly, insensible to the kings that fight wars along its banks. There's this theory that most of the world's conflicts are fought over water. People use water to explain everything from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to war in the Sudan. And the theory starts to look very attractive when you think about the history of the Ganga Valley. The Ganga brings with it fertile soil ground out from the mountains. The Ganga's waters support enough crops even in ancient times to feed cities of more than a million people. And on the surface of the water, boats hurry up and down with goods stopping only to be taxed. So if you're an ancient Indian king in North India, control of the Ganga pretty much means control of your world. It's no wonder then that kings fought on its banks so much. But at this point in ancient Indian history, the point we're visiting in this series, they haven't been fighting. For more than 200 years, the Gupta Empire has kept peace along the banks of the river. In fact, the Gupta Empire started right here on the banks of the river Ganga, and the early emperors expanded the territory upstream and downstream until they'd conquered all of the central area of the Ganga. They conquered other parts of India too, but those other parts they tended to hand over to feudatory kings, kings who were just working for them and basically ruling their territories as they pleased. But those central stretches of the Ganga, the Guptas kept those for themselves. They made it into the Gupta heartland. But now, after 200 years, the Gupta Empire is crumbling. It has suffered blow after blow, invasion after invasion. Maybe few people in its territory could see this at the time, but the empire is about to end. And once again, the banks of the Ganga will be fought over as the kings of ancient India begin to scheme, looking for their chance to control it. In this episode, we're going to take a look at two kingdoms. Kingdoms that start out as feudatory states of the Gupta Empire. Their feudatory kings, just one of many that surrounded the Gupta Emperor and had done for centuries. But like many of the other feudatory kings, they're looking for their opportunity to take the Gupta's seat. These two kingdoms are actually quite small. On the broad scale of world history, they're almost insignificant. On the slightly less broad scale of Indian history, well, they're still relatively minor. If you're writing a complete history of the subcontinent, you might only give them a passing mention. But to the people of Patliputra, at the close of the Gupta era, these two kingdoms hold the future in their fists. Now, you might have noticed that we're going to recap a little bit of the last episode of the previous series. That's partly because we want to get the the story right. It's partly because I've changed my mind on a couple of things. And anyway, 
recapping is no bad thing. So off we go. The story of our two kingdoms starts far away from Bhadliputra. In fact, it's almost a month's journey to the west and a bit to the south. The story starts on the high tableland of Malwa. Malwa is a region that's about the size of modern-day Austria. It's a bit bigger than Sri Lanka. It's a pretty big area. And it's a triangle of volcanic rock, the remains of the largest volcanic eruption that we know of on the Earth. The lava is now being slowly disintegrated into the black, fertile soil of the area. To the north of this triangle is a sort of drier, scrubland area, rugged, a place of hard living. And there lie the great cities of Malwa, and in fact the greatest city of the region, Ujjain. Towards the south, the Narmada River separates two lines of hills. There, the land's a little bit lusher, the rocks are different, and the jungle is thicker too. Malwa is the crossroads of the Indian subcontinent. Suppose you've got a bunch of caravans laden down with goods up in the north of the country, up by the Ganga, and you want to take them down to the south. Well, it'd probably be best advised to take them through the woods and paths of Malwa, past Ujjain. Or, suppose you want to take your caravans out to the west, to the seaports that lead eventually to Rome. Well, you might wind your way through Malwa too. And of course, it wasn't just caravans that came through Malwa. Armies came through too. The Guptas even based their army there. So for a while, Malwa had become the de facto centre of the empire, pretty much the capital. And the Gupta army reached out from there, along the roads, from those crossroads, conquering new lands and protecting the old ones. And then, the White Huns came through too. From their lands far out to the west, they pushed through the Gupta armies in Malwa, pushed them back and up towards the Gupta heartlands. And in this crossroads central province, there are a bunch of feudatory kings, subordinate to the Guptas, but who are beginning to see that they wanted to take over from the Gupta Empire. One of them was a man called Krishnagupta. He's called Krishnagupta, so it sounds a bit like he's related to the emperors, the Guptas, but actually he's not a relative of anyone ruling the Gupta Empire. It was pretty common to have Gupta at the end of your name, so it doesn't really mean much that he has it. But he was from a good family, we're told, and he was a sort of local bigwig. He got given the title King, Ripper, but the title could mean anything from a person ruling a few towns almost independently, down to just being a reasonably important bureaucrat. Being a king back in those days was really no big deal. Nowadays, we call him king of the later Guptas, to distinguish him from the Guptas who ran the empire, the imperial Guptas. So Krishna Gupta might not have been an imperial Gupta, but he did work for the imperial Guptas. He was subordinate to them in some sense, he might just have been employed by them like a regular civil servant, or he might have been a feudatory king in a more proper sense. He did his job for the Guptas very well. He seems to be in a man of tremendous competence. We're told that his arm was like a lion, punching its claws into the elephants of the enemy. He seemed to be a tough warrior, 
from the tough tableland. The plateau of Marla had other occupants too. People from even better families, more ancient ones, more prestigious ones. And in particular, it contained the Malava. The legends of the origins of the Malava are really quite wonderful. In fact, we've heard part of those legends before, but they're pretty famous anyway, so quite a few people might know them already, and they're worth repeating. One of those stories that gets better with repetition. So the story goes that a certain princess was extremely beautiful and intelligent. So beautiful and intelligent, in fact, that no man would come near her. She was just too formidable, too intimidating. Frankly, she scared them. So the princess's father, who just wanted her to get married, agreed to let her marry anyone she wanted. Go out and find a husband. Find someone who will sit near you. Someone who's not scared by you. And so she did. She went out. And one day, she found the man. A man so beautiful and intelligent and perfect that he wasn't intimidated by her. He was the perfect husband. Except for one thing. This man had been foredestined to die in a year's time. But the princess, the princess just didn't care. She brought the man back to her family and said, I've chosen him, this is the chap. He's going to die in a year, but don't worry. Now, her family were obviously pretty concerned. A one-year marriage isn't the sort of thing that's going to sustain their daughter into old age, they thought. But she was determined. And after all, her father had agreed to let her marry whomever she chose. So she married this man destined to die in a year. Happy months were spent in the marriage. But sooner than they wanted, the fateful day approached. The day when her husband was foredestined to die. The princess withdrew. She started fasting, started begging God for the life of her husband. And then the morning of the day came. And in the woods, she saw the God of death approaching, coming for the life of her husband. She pled with him, praised him with the very best praise that she could think up. The God of death was moved by her, moved by her praise and also by her fasting, by her keeping of these austere vows. And he granted her five wishes. And so she wished that her and her husband have a hundred children together and that her husband live for 400 years. And then, being an immensely charitable sort, she used the remaining wishes on her father-in-law that his sight and his kingdom would be restored. He was blind and dethroned. And crucially for us, that her father-in-law would also have 100 sons. And that's crucial for us because those 100 sons, they became the Malavas. The Malavas were a powerful tribe from the earliest part of historical India. They were Shastriyas, warriors, warriors of the, of the moon sort. And in the early historic period, they seem to have been over in the Punjab. But by the time of the Gupta Empire, they had settled in Malwa, up on that tableland, on that volcanic plateau. In fact, they gave it its name, Malwa, after the Malavas. At some point, probably in the early centuries BC, a group of the Malavas split off. They may have been led by a man called Malkari. 
That's what medieval Indians thought. Though, actually, Malkari just means something like leader, the chief doer. So it seems more like to be a title than a real person's name. But in any case, this group, Malkari and his followers, became famous in their own right. In fact, so famous that they featured in ancient Indian grammar books. If your family's in the grammar book, it's probably a pretty famous family. Either that or your family writes grammar books. Like Krishnagupta, the Malkaris were servants of the Gupta Empire. Nothing more than feudatory kings, and that might have meant nothing much. And precisely where they served the Gupta Empire, it's a little bit tricky to pin down. They may still have been in Malwa, the land named after their ancestors, but I think more likely they ruled a small territory further north, on the banks of the Ganga, in the city of the Hunchback Maidens. This city is going to become tremendously important over the next two series of the podcasts. Today, we call it Kanauj. The generation previous to the time we're at the moment, the Huns had invaded the Gupta Empire. But the Guptas had pushed them back to the west, pushed them back to their homeland. And there, the Huns had stayed for a little while. But now, the Huns had a new king. According to the Indian sources, the new Hun king was crueler than the one before, more bloodthirsty. And soon, the Hun army was flooding back into the Mala region, pushing the army of the Imperial Guptas back, hoping to hit through to the Gupta heartlands. But the Gupta Emperor fought back. In the last series, we heard about his desperate fight. But we didn't say that alongside him fought his feudatory kings, his servants. Amongst them was probably Krishnagupta, that small king or civil servant we just talked about, and also probably the Malkaris. And the rest is history. Well, okay, I suppose. It's all history, but you know what I mean. The Guptas won, but it was a Pyrrhic victory. It cost the Gupta Empire too much. And the Gupta Empire found that it had to withdraw from Malwa. Maybe Malwa was too hard to defend. Too many routes in and out. It had a few very defensible places, had that very famous defensible city. But as a whole, it was too attractive to invaders. Maybe also it was just too far from the lands of the Guptas, up on the banks of the Ganga. For whatever reason, the imperial court packed up their stuff and headed back to Patliputra. It must have been one of the shocking events of the age. The Gupta Empire hadn't taken a step back for almost 200 years since the days of the great conquering emperors. And here they were, not abandoning a fringe piece of territory, but abandoning the very base of their operations, their military centre. They had carved fine caves into the rocks there. Those had to be abandoned, left as they stood. And that great city of Ujjain, that had to be left for the enemy. The whole power of the Gupta Empire had shrunk so much that it couldn't defend even this core territory. What would the crowd of feudatory kings nestled around the emperor think? 
the fugitives for whom the power of the Guptas had always been supreme, and their loyalty to it pretty much unquestioned. Well, one of the kings, Krishnagupta, probably stuck quite close to the emperor. In fact, he seems to have followed the Guptas back to Patliputra together with his son Harsha. Harsha, by the way, not the Harsha you've heard of probably. Not the harsh we mentioned in the last episode. Harsh is a fairly common name. It means happiness, pleasure, hair-raising excitement. This chap was Harsha Gupta. And from what little we know about him, he seems to have been an exciting person. It's said that he gained glory in terrible conquests. Quite likely he was fighting alongside his father and the emperor against the Huns. In any case, the whole Gupta family got up, joined the imperial Guptas on the journey to Patliputra leaving Malwa behind. The later Gupta family was on the rise. Even as the Imperial Guptas were collapsing, hitched its wagon to the Imperial Guptas. But not all of the feudatory kings in the Gupta Empire felt the same way. The Malkaris, well, they didn't, they didn't budge. And probably they were well ensconced in their lands, and after all, they were an august and famous family. They stayed there in the city of Hunchback Maidens, Kanaj, upstream from Patliputra. Now those two houses, the later Guptas and the Malkaris, they remained faithful to the emperor, at least in name. But the Gupta Empire might no longer seem invincible, but that's a long way from thinking it's finished. And both seem to have continued as feudatories of the emperor. But these were still uncertain times. For generations now, disaster has been striking the empire, and I imagine it felt that another disaster was just around the corner. So the two feudatory kingdoms looked around to shore up their alliances. And in fact, there was a marriage alliance between the two kingdoms, with the king of the Malkaris marrying the sister of Harsha, Gupta. But the crumbling of the empire wasn't just a time to fear. It wasn't just a time to shore up your position. It was also an exciting time, a time of opportunity. And feudatory states started to see opportunities to establish themselves in place of the Gupta Empire, to have an empire of their own. A generation before, feudatory kings had tried to do this. But back then, the Gupta Emperor had been strong enough, and in fact downright cunning enough, to thrash them all soundly back into place. Now the Gupta Emperor was even weaker. Would he be strong enough to do anything about it this time if his feudatory kings rose up? Maybe not. That final fight with the Huns, it really taken its toll. They'd even lost that key province. In that key province, in Malwa, one of the feudatory states decided to try its luck, tried to see if they could establish a new empire for themselves. Yes, I know it's a podcast about Putliputra, but everything's happening in Malwa in this episode, pretty much. They were up in the northwest of Malwa, by the way. I'm not going to name them, and I'm not going to name their king, the would-be emperor. He's going to be in the story just too short a time, and there are too many names already. At this time, the whole of Malwa seems to have been in chaos. The Huns had passed through here, there'd been a great battle, the Huns had been beaten, and the king captured... But in fact, there still seem to have been Huns around, maybe even Huns ruling. The would-be emperor stepped into the chaos, and he started to take control. He defeated the Huns, he kicked them out. 
And soon, the would-be emperor was master of the Crossroads province, king of the tableland. And that's a military powerful position. A powerful position he was going to take advantage of. And soon, his army was marching down the roads that spread from the crossroads. To all appearances, a new empire was in town. The would-be emperor's army went from Malwa to the ends of the earth. Or at least, the ends of India. Almost literally. Because the would-be emperor had his sights on the land of the Red River, Assam, tucked away in northeast India. And that, that's an awful long way from Malwa. If you go directly there, it's about 2,000 kilometres. That's around two months by foot. But the would-be emperor didn't go directly. It seems like he swung north first, up into the broad plains, up to the banks of the Ganga itself. And there, he seems to have picked up allies, new vassals, new fugitory kings to help him. He seems to have picked up our friends, the Malkaris. They joined the invasion force heading east to Assam. And they made it all the way to Assam too. And there, the Malkaris fought alongside the would-be emperor, by the banks of the Ridder running red with mud, bound in by impassable forests. And they also fought elsewhere too, such as in the Himalayas, the mountains of snow. It seemed like a new emperor had suddenly and violently emerged in North India, just as the Gupta Empire was dying. But it only seemed that way. It wasn't to be so. This would-be emperor, he disappeared. He just drops right out of history. We don't know what happened. Sudden death, maybe. Internal fighting. Maybe in battle. We're not sure. His empire was like a flame catching light in a pan, passing quickly over the dish and then just disappearing again. A sign of underlying troubles, but in itself, not very significant. Not going to cook your dish. In retrospect, though, the fall of the would-be emperor can seem almost inevitable. He seems to have launched his attempt to make an empire just too early, before the imperial guptas were properly finished, and when there were still many nominally loyal to them. My guess is that the would-be emperor just misunderstood his place. Really, he was just one more feudatory king amongst all the others. But there are signs, hints that he treated the old feudatory kings just as the Gupta emperors used to, giving them autonomy, taking them into the army, allowing them to go around conquering things, maybe even conquering things on their own. Now, giving your underlings that sort of right, that sort of autonomy to go off on your own, that might have been fine at the height of the Gupta empire. If you're the Gupta emperor, no one bothers to question your power, really. They just take it as accepted fact. But those days were over, and the would-be emperor just gave too much power to his feudatories. And sure enough, the Malkaris, up on the banks of the Ganga, declared independence. The would-be emperor sent a force to bring them back into line. A flame came along the road, as the Malkari king puts it, but the flame was quickly stamped out. By now, the Malkaris were experienced in battle. And they'd won many victories. They were confident. And their king, the third generation in that line, had founded his independent kingdom. But the Malkari king wouldn't try to become an emperor right away. 
He'd wait a little bit longer, be a, a little bit more cautious before taking his shot to be the new emperor. In fact, it wouldn't be him, but his son who made that change. For now, the Malkaris contented themselves with having invasions down to the south, away from the Gupta heartlands, away from the Gunga. The Malkaris beat up enemies on the Deccan Plateau and some other mysterious foe we don't really know who it is, but it's in the inscription. One day soon, though, they would look to take the old Gupta heartlands. They would fight to rule Pataliputra, and when they fought for it, they would be relentless. One of our two kingdoms, the Malkaris, they were very much on the rise, and in fact had become independent. What about that other kingdom we talked about, the later Guptas? Less prestigious, less great name? Well, things happened rather differently for them. They were still allied with the Malkaris through marriage, but they were in a different place. Remember, they'd followed the Imperial Guptas, the Emperor, back to Patliputra. And there they rose, even as the Imperial Guptas fell. The first two heads of the later Gupta family were called kings. That doesn't really mean much, as we said. Not more than maybe respectable officials. But the third generation, Jivata, he wasn't just a king. He's called best amongst the kings. That probably still means best amongst the feudatory kings, but there are loads and loads of feudatory kings. If he's risen to the top of that pile, well, it's a pretty big pile. As the collapse of the Gupta Empire continued, the Gupta emperors shrinked increasingly towards the east, east even of Pataliputra, downstream towards the sea. And the later Guptas, well, they didn't follow them again. They were no longer chasing the tails of the emperor. Instead, they started to throw their weight around, almost on their own, with their own army. The later Gupta army went up north to the Himalayas and did some conquering there. And then they actually took the army downstream, after where the emperor had gone, but not really chasing the emperor. Instead, they were fighting this new, upcoming power, down where the Gunga met the sea, beating them back from the shoreline, keeping them in their proper place. Now, Perhaps the later Guptas were still doing this all in the name of the old Gupta emperor. But increasingly, it seems more like a move towards independence, or at least autonomy. Maybe the later Guptas were using their Gupta name to line themselves up as the next rightful rulers of the empire, a bit like a, a new politician using a recognised name on the ballot box. It probably didn't hurt them any if people confused them with the imperial Guptas, some of that old glory rubbing off on a new and relatively unknown family. The later Guptas didn't set themselves up, though, as a mere continuation of the Gupta empire. I think there's a danger of falling into a bit of a Eurocentric way of seeing empires here. In the Mediterranean world, after the fall of the Roman Empire, there were successors, successors in a proper sense. First you had Byzantium, and then you had the Holy Roman Empire. And each of them saw themselves just as a continuation of Rome. They called themselves the Roman Emperor. In fact, more often than not, they just dropped the Roman bit. They just said, the Emperor, the Empire. 
because it was obvious to them in the Mediterranean that there could only be one empire, and that was the Roman one. There was one seat on that throne of that empire, so naturally they saw themselves as successors. But there's no sign that those who came after the Gupta Empire saw things in the same way. Maybe the later Guptas traded on the Gupta name a bit, but not too much. They never claimed any family ties to the Imperial Guptas. Not once in every descriptions do they mention the Imperial Guptas. And they didn't adopt the state iconography of the Guptas either. They didn't adopt the official Gupta religion, worshipping Vishnu. Instead, they seemed to be more closely following Shiva probably like the majority of people in India at that time. So the Garuda symbol, the symbol of the vehicle of Vishnu, the symbol that was stamped on every Imperial Gupta coin, the symbol that was carried before the Imperial Gupta armies, the later Guptas just didn't pick it up. This wasn't someone trying to continue the Gupta empire. It's more like someone trying to establish their own empire. Maybe I'm overstating things. Doubtless, a lot of the trappings of the Imperial Guptas would be taken up by later empires. After all, the trappings of the Guptas had become associated with being an emperor, with being all-powerful. And that's just the same way as, I say, cushion clothing and traditions earlier had become associated with being an empire. The followers of the Kushan Empire, the people who came after it, they tended to dress a little bit like cushions and they had a similar administrative structure. But maybe with one or two exceptions, these people who followed the Kushan Empire, they didn't think they were rebuilding the Kushan Empire. Likewise, the people who followed the Gupta Empire probably didn't think they were rebuilding the Gupta Empire. And we're going to leave our two feudatory kingdoms there, in an uneasy peace. The later Guptas down in Patliputra perhaps in some nominal sense loyal to the old Gupta emperors, but pretty nearly independent for all intents and purposes, conquering up and down the Ganga. And upstream, in Kanauj, the Malkaris, independent both from the later Guptas and from the would-be emperor and from the imperial Guptas, conquering south. These two feudatory kingdoms hadn't yet come to bows. In fact, they seem to have been on reasonably friendly terms. There may have been a, been a marriage between the two families. The next Malkari king married a woman with the name something something Gupta, Upa Gupta. Though, as I said, Gupta is a pretty common ending to a name, so she might have had nothing to do with the later Guptas whatsoever. But this uneasy peace between the two feudatory kingdoms, it just couldn't last. The two were going to come to blows. But that's a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. And this week, I thought we'd read a Malkari inscription. It's an inscription that's a little bit later than the time of this episode, but it's looking back fondly on the founding of, of the dynasty. It's found way up in the Gangetic Plain, not too far from Kanauj. It starts out by invoking the god Shiva, and then it goes on to tell us about the first few Malkari kings. It goes something a bit like this.
He who is the cause of the active deities that affect the manifestation, destruction and preservation of the world. The one on whom yogis, for whom the mass of darkness has been destroyed and have overcome their passions, meditate. The one in whose heart passion has no place, though a woman occupies half his body. He, the soul of all living beings, the destroyer of the triple city, the fountainhead of bliss on earth, is victorious. May that body of Andaka's foe, on which snakes gleam, give you a more stable abode. A body that wears a lion skin that is slightly red because of the light of the jewel in the hood of the serpent, that's the sacred thread. And that reddens the white line of scars, that is the chaplet, with the radiance from the third eye. And that bears with its crest the slender digit dispelling darkness of the moon. The Makara kings who destroyed their enemies and stopped evil doing, descended from that eminent century of sons which King Ashrapati obtained. The origin legend referenced here is just a little bit different. Among them, there arose at the beginning, for the well-being of the world, a ruler of the earth, the powerful being called Harivarman. Measured by his fame, by which all courts of space were besieged, and his brilliance, which destroyed the happiness of his foes, for whom the enemies bowed in fear when they saw his face at the battlefield, as this was aglow with the luster of fire, and who for that reason obtained the name Flameface on Earth. And then the inscription goes on to talk about his son, the second king, Aditya Varman. When his fire was kindled for sacrifice, the thick smoke, black as the night, rising up to the sky on all sides and swelling through its whirling and tossing in the wind, made the peacocks cry, since they mistook it for a large rain cloud. And that's about it for this week. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Really appreciate it. I hope you've been enjoying the podcasts. If you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snail Sidhu Patrick Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. There's a link to the website in the description of the podcast. Catch you in a couple of weeks. Until then, have a great time. And take care. <laughs>